Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World bonus material from the podcast feed. I'm author David Agronoff, author of Punk Rock Ghost Story, and my most recent book is Goddamn Killing Machines from Clash Books, which is like a military sci-fi. Think of the Dirty Dozen if Philip K. Dick wrote it. Anyways, that's me. Um, joining me today is Daniel Velasti and Kirk Jones. Let's start with Daniel. Tell him who you are, what you do, and uh, then we'll go to Kirk. Hi, I'm Daniel. Uh, I write uh, mostly crime fiction, a little bit of bizarro. I've been kind of leaning toward uh, like street level crime fiction lately. My most recent book, uh, Stay Ugly, came out in February through All Due Respect Books. Um, you know, it takes place over a night. It's very fast paced, kind of doesn't slow down at all. That's the kind of stuff I'm interested in writing. Oh, that sounds a little familiar. Yeah. Uh, might lead to uh, some good discussions on talking about this one. Kirk. Kirk Jones, welcome uh, to Postcards from a Dying World. Tell the folks who you are. Uh, Kirk Jones, uh, father of two. So you might hear some footsteps pitter pattering by in the background. I'm trying to keep them as quiet as I can here. Um, I've written a couple of books uh, over the last 10 years or so, uh, the most recent of which was uh, Fuck Happiness through uh, Atlato Press and um, Ether Christ through Apex, and uh, that's about all I've got. Okay, so um, what I wanted to do, I mean, basically we're going to talk about Paul Tremblay's Survivor Song, which is a book we both read. Uh, it's a recent release from William Morrow. It's another big deal coming from Paul Tremblay, who's becoming one of the biggest voices in horror today. Um, and so I wanted to uh, kind of go around and talk about our relationship with horror, what kind of horror we like, and uh, what Paul Tremblay we have read or not read before. Uh, Daniel, is this, this is your first time reading Paul Tremblay, correct? Yeah, this is the first one of his I read. Obviously, I've had all of his on my radar. They're huge. All my friends like him. Everybody talks about his writing. I have wanted to check them out. I just haven't got around to it until this one. Yeah, and Kirk, you have read a couple Paul Tremblay's, right? Yeah, um, I audiobook most of his stuff. Uh, so I did uh, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, I believe. If I got the name wrong, I apologize. Um, and then I did uh, Cabin at the End of the World and most recently the Survivor Songbook. Uh, all through uh, the library service, our local library service. So I was excited to check his stuff out because uh, like with Daniel, um, you know, he's one of those names that moves in our circles. Uh, and he's not a bad guy. I've only had like one or two interactions with him over time. He, I talked to him a while ago. It's probably a year now about trying to acquire an agent. And um, I've enjoyed all the work uh, so far. I really like Disappearance of Devil's Rock. It was just really different in terms of, you know, what I expected. I thought it was going to be like a really uh, hardcore horror novel and it was more of a kind of a, a mystery book uh, that uh, the pacing was interesting but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I find his pacing to be very interesting in all of his books that I've read so far. So, mm -hmm. Yeah um, I've had the chance to hang out with Paul twice. Um, uh, once at World Horror and then once at uh, the Cabin of the End of the World signing here at uh, Mysterious Galaxies in San Diego. Paul's super cool dude. Um, and so that's always nice too, that when you read an author who you like, that they turn out to be a really cool person as well. Um, <laughs> but I kind of knew that was coming because, uh, uh, he runs in, in pretty, uh, pretty good circles within the horror community. And that's one of the things for me, he kind of came out of nowhere because um, he's an East Coaster and I've been out on the West Coast for long enough now that I had, hadn't really seen his name before I first saw a head full of ghosts at Mysterious Galaxies in a hardcover. And usually with names in horror, you see maybe a trade paperback or short stories here and there. And for me, it was just like, boom, there was this hardcover and the, the title of the book comes from a bad religion song, which had me very curious head full of ghosts and um so that was the first one that i read i read head full of ghosts uh 
I have not read Disappearance of Devil, Devil's Rock, but I read uh, his uh, no, split novella with Brian Evanson. And then I read um, Cabin at the End of the World, which I really, really liked. Um, Head Full of Ghosts, I liked as well, but not as much as, as Cabin at the End of the World. And yes, that's the one. That I haven't I read it yet, but I got it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, which is, we'll get back to the tone of that one in a little bit because I think that that plays into it. But I do want to talk about, um, Kirk, I think you're, I mean, you write mostly in, in the weird sci-fi kind of vein, um, but you're a horror reader as well. Um, and uh, who, who are some of your favorite horror touchstones as far as uh, that? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna sound so basic, I think, um, when I talk about this. Uh, I do like, of course, Clive Barker is probably one of the first horror writers or horror fantasy, horror sci-fi, kind of genre bending uh, work. Um, I really love The Great and Secret Show and all those books. Uh, with sci-fi, of course, Philip K. Dick. Um, when it comes to horror, uh, I do like Dean Koontz. I think he has a very cinematic approach to writing. Um, it's, it's enjoyable for me. Uh, and I like the range that he has as well. And I know these are, these are mostly mainstream writers. In terms of writers that, that more run in our circles, uh, definitely Anderson Prunny, of course, um, with, with his horror work. I like his bizarre type of material a little bit better, um, but he's good. C.B. Hunt, I enjoy uh, some of her more recent work. Um, oh, let's see who else. Well, Jeremy Robert Johnson, I have a good time with, um, but I haven't read anything recent from him. It's all the older work that he was doing, you know, back in 2010, you know, during that time period. So that's all enjoyable stuff. Um, I have been dipping into Brian Keene, and having a good time with that work so far. Uh, the Earthworm Gods book was really good. And I could probably like dig up a couple of other ones. I know like Carlton Mellick fits into that realm, but I'd qualify him as more bizarro than horror. Uh, but I still enjoy some of his work as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's just a couple names I'll throw out there. Daniel, your horror bona fides? Who are your Yeah, favorites? so horror is actually, I like horror, I read it often. Um, it's not one of my top genres usually. I like, you know, the um, Stephen Graham Jones, that side of the horror, the more uh, getting bigger now, obviously, with the, his newer releases are obviously huge, but he started kind of small, maybe kind of adjacent to like us or the bizarro world a little bit. Uh, you know, Brian Evanson, those kind of, that kind of horror is what I usually kind of gravitate to. Some Stephen King short stories, I guess, but nothing. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I grew up on, Clyde Barker was one of my favorite writers growing up. I, I don't, uh, have not read Clyde Barker as much recently, uh, but Clyde Barker was important to me. One of my favorite horror writers is Robert McCannon, and you get a lot of comparisons with Paul Tremblay to him being like, uh, we're getting a lot of comparisons to other writers, and I would say the two authors that his work most remind me of are Richard Matheson and Robert McCammon. And it's weird that we haven't seen more comparisons to Robert McCammon because I think his kind of naturalistic, um, well, he does more amb ambiguous endings than Robert McCammon does not do ambiguous like uh, Paul Tremblay does, but I think the naturalistic construction of it reminds me a lot of, of um, uh, Robert McCammon. Not that Robert McCammon couldn't get weird because we are talking about uh, the guy who wrote Wolf Sour and Gone South and um, and if you've never, uh, Daniel, if you've never read Gone South, that's a um, weird as hell southern gothic horror crazy fucking book by Robert McCammon and it has the best opening line of um, any uh, not, one one of my favorite opening lines of all time um as uh gone south by robert mccammon but anyways um so uh i'm gonna personally say that daniel if you trust me from what i can tell of, of your tastes i think on south is going to be perfect for you all right so survivor song enough about everybody else we're going to talk about uh paul tremblay's um password for me head full of ghosts um and Jeremy Robert Johnson did a, an interview with Paul where they talked a lot about this that you can find on YouTube for, through Powell's books. And um, he definitely pointed out that 
Tremblay is playing with these major horror conventions. The exorcism story in Head Full of Ghosts, the disappearing child and the disappearance at Devil's Rock, um, which I haven't read, but I believe that's what that's about. Um, and the home invasion story in Cabin at the End of the World. And uh, this one is a zombie story, even though it's not exactly zombies, but you know, some of the kind of more awkward parts of the book are people trying to deal with whether it's not a zombie, whether it is zombies or not zombies. Um, and that's not Paul's fault. That's just, it's an, it's an awkward part of the story. Um, but what I think is great about Survivor Song and my personal opinion and why this really works is that um, there's two ways you can go about it. You can do a global approach or you can do a personal approach. And just with, and the way I describe this in my review is that you have your, just to look at War of the Worlds. You took your 50s War of the Worlds has generals and has a global reaction. It has all the, 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 the whole world relating to this alien invasion. And then in the um, Tom Cruise one, you have uh, just his family's point of view and no one else. And everything is from their narrow type perspective. So Survivor Song is in the is is in the back side of this, I guess. Um, starting with Daniel, first off, what was your first thoughts on uh, reading Survivor Song when you closed the book? How did you feel about it overall? So I, I liked it. Obviously, I really liked it a lot. But I I liked the kind of what you were, were going on. I liked the personal aspect of the story. I like that you get kind of tastes of like the global or not the global because it's not a global. Um, illness it's like regional I guess at that point but you get taste of what, yeah you get taste of what's going on out there but it's really like hyper focused on on these two characters basically mm -hmm. but I, I really enjoyed it I, I like the um, I actually like the banter about with with Lewis and Josh with is it are they zombies are they not zombies I thought that kind of played a little played fun with the situation I guess I kind of like that and I'm not saying that it was bad I'm just saying it was it's awkward yeah it's awkward it's, it's awkward for the characters. Uh, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it a lot, though. Well, I, like I said, I just reread the book last night and this morning, so it's pretty fresh in, in my head, but I uh, I really enjoyed, like, their whole, like, Lewis and Josh. I didn't, like, I did not like them the first time, but I really liked them the second time as characters. Mm -hmm. And, Kirk, overall, what was your first thoughts when you when you finished this? Did you listen to this on audiobook, you said? I did, yeah. I, I, yep, definitely. Um, it can't go wrong when it's free, right? Uh, but so I'm always thinking about these books comparatively. So I had to go back and think about it in relation to the other two books that I'd read. And the one thing I like is that um, it's so there are horror books that are written where the immediate threat is is happening um, in in real time, and we're dealing with like you know maybe a zombie setup, or we're dealing with whatever whatever genre we're in. There's hauntings, there's zombies, whatever. But in a lot of Tremblay's books, we're kind of dealing instead with like people that are isolated from the immediate threat, but the threat is always kind of looming on the horizon. And every now and then we'll like, we'll see the threat emerge. But most of the time it's people contending with uh, all of the questions that surround uh, the, this, this looming threat or this threat that's kind of in the distance, which I think is really nice. Um, it's just, it feels different to me. Um, and I think it does take some getting used to for me uh, who's used to really fast paced, like, um, I, I don't even dare I say like breakneck uh, speed novellas that are like 120, 150 pages long. But this is material, I think, that is more um, conducive to uh, a, a mainstream reader. So it was really enlightening for me, you know. Now that's, I, I have more, but I'm going to shut up because I don't want to like just try to, you know, take too much time. But that's my one initial thought. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to give initial thoughts. So let's talk about the construction of the novel and, and the plot um, a, a, as it is. So um, Survivor Song is the story of um, a rabies pandemic. And um, one of the interesting things about the book, and, and it shows when you've got um, the, the actual, and I just want to talk about the layout of the book. So if you didn't, if you, Kirk, you did this on audio, so you didn't get to see it. Um, but the layout of the book is incredible. <laughs> like, um, it looks amazing. It has like, um, 
kind of like landscapes mixed in and then the first couple pages uh where the the interludes and the preludes have a different font mm -hmm. a really cool design and so um i think in some ways it gives the book a real like kind of grand feeling which is interesting because when i heard that he was doing a pandemic book i your, your mind immediately goes to um, books like Chuck Wendig's The Wanderers or The Stand or stuff like Swan Song. And I expected a doorstop. I expected 800 pages. I expected multiple characters. And what we got was something that was very different, um, this, this tight focus. And the entire novel is centered on two characters, Natalie and Ramallah or is it remote? Uh, I'm, everybody knows me in pronunciations. I always screw it up when I'm recording. But uh, Rams and Natalie, <laughs> Nats and, and Rams. And um, um, Natalie and Rams have been friends since college, but Rams has grown up to become a doctor. And that's very important to the story. And when you look at the acknowledgments at the end of the book, you can see that Paul says that it all started with asking his um, sister, who's a nurse, um, you know, hey, could so somebody who's turning into a zom zombie give birth to a baby? And you can tell from that acknowledgment that was the, the kernel of the idea and that the whole novel is probably constructed from that idea. And in that sense, Survivor Song is smartly not a global story. It doesn't have to talk about everything else. It just has to focus on that relationship. And that relationship between the two friends becomes the spine of the story. Because if they didn't have that kind of tight friendship, there wouldn't be that driving force to make sure that Natalie's child is born and that creates the through line and the tension of the whole thing. It drives the whole story. Natalie is bitten in the first chapter. We know she's infected. We know there's a limited amount of time. She gets a vaccine that slows it down. But the very interesting setup of it is that we know that this virus travels up your body towards your brain. So you have a, you have a ticking clock that it, that she's eight and a half months pregnant. She wasn't gonna give birth anyways at this point. She was just very, very pregnant. But now we've got to get her in a situation where she can give birth. Otherwise, the child's not gonna live. And there's a lot of great tension between Ramallah and um, Natalie in the sense that her friend who's a doctor knows she's not going to make it, right? But she can't tell her that she's not going to make it because she needs her to keep fighting and trying. And this is a great setup. It's a great concept, very tight. And then it creates a situation where the story is all going to be over a few hours time. In fact, if you were to adapt this for film, it would be really interesting to do it 24 style in real time. Um, I think would make it a fascinating film to basically just like start the clock and just go mm -hmm. uh, maybe not adhere to every minute of it being live like 24 but um and the only film comparison i thought of was um 28 um weeks later not the uh first one but the second one which it had this kind of pacing and one of the things that's going to be interesting on this and and this me and daniel have this in common is that Stay Ugly is all set in one evening. I did a horror novel called Ring of Fire that I tried to have this kind of pacing on. So I know what it's like to try and write this story with Ring of Fire, my novel Ring of Fire. I tried to have this same kind of like nonstop pacing once the catastrophe starts. Although I did it with multiple characters. So I think it was, um, uh, the, the concept is a little tighter here. Anyways, how do you guys feel about the execution of the pacing of this? Anybody want to jump in first? Besides, I've talked for a while. So I, I like the pacing. I think, I think it roughly takes place over four hours, I think, is what the timeline kind of is. Um, 
I thought there were some parts that kind of slowed down a little too much. Um, that kind of pulled me out slightly. The second time I read through it, I, I kind of skimmed through those parts that were like hyper focused on like details of every single thing around and stuff. But the um, the actual pacing once they were walking and on the road and stuff, I, I kind of I really liked all that. I thought it was the tension was high. Again, like I was telling David, the second time I read it, I had like crazy anxiety the whole time I was going through it. I mean, I knew what was going to happen, obviously, but something about it, I was super anxious while I was reading it. I have to say I agree. Um, I, so I'm audio booking this and I, I look at the time and I think it was something around like 13 or 14 hours in total. And I'm five hours into the book and I, it was somewhere around five hours, I think. And she was just driving to her friend's house at that point after being bitten. I'm like, wait, wait a damn minute. Like I've been listening to this book for five hours and I think maybe one hour of time has passed, but I, I did not like, it never occurred to me as I was listening to it that like the, pacing was slow or anything of that nature it just kind of shocked me when I saw the amount of time that it transpired on the uh, on the app that I had in front of me so and I agree that it's it's when they get on the road and they start moving is when the it really starts to become almost completely unnoticeable uh, how how much or how little time is going by so I think there's what five to seven hours remaining in the audiobook at that point and you know only maybe three hours of time goes by in the actual book, but it works really well. And of course we have those diary entries, those audio diary entries um, that, that contribute to that kind of slowing the pacing down a little bit without making it, you know, too dry or, or anything like that. So it was, it was an interesting approach and uh, yeah, it was wicked. Well, it's going to be interesting when we talk about the very ending of the book, like, cause I'm interested to know how they did that in audio book because um, uh, the way it was written was very, very interesting. Um, if I am muting a lot here, guys, I have a um, dog freaking out because neighbor watering lawn. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, once they got on the road, things definitely were propelled better. I loved the, the diary entries, um, gave um, a little bit more of the emotional content and also set up, um, I thought, what one thing that Paul did that was really good with uh, with that was that he kind of played off the fact that Nats is communicating certain things that she's not telling her friend, and we, so we know these things that they're that they're thinking through uh, Ramallah's um, um, point of view. We're getting some of her thoughts, and we're and and through Nats from the different views were getting the kind of push pull of what they're telling each other and what they're not telling each other. And um, we're also seeing that the level to which things are kind of ratcheting up. Um, this um, also, um, you know, one of the things that happened recently this week too was that Stephen King tweeted out that, <laughs> let me pause it for a second. So this week, um, we had Stephen King tweeted out that he was reading Survivor Song, and he compared it to Richard Matheson, which I think is, is just, but he also was talking about how he couldn't put it down, the propulsive nature of it, which is the things that we're all seeing. Um, far be it for me to disagree with the top-selling horror author of the world ever, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I definitely... Think that that propulsive nature is part of it but i also think that the um things that were done subtly in the book um create so much of um at the atmosphere and i'm thinking of uh specifically some things that are not huge parts of it but because it's a rabies virus the fact that there's the scenes with the kind of killer coyotes that are running around they don't actually engage with the coyotes, but they're there and they add such great tension. And I think that that was something that was really cool that you did in there. How did you guys feel about, about um, those little elements? What kind of little elements did you like of Survivor Song? I liked all the, I liked the coyote stuff. I liked all the animals. I liked, um, obviously I liked all the stuff with the uh, militia and the um, animal control guys. I liked all that stuff. And again, uh, Rams and Nats don't really, they're part of it, kind of, they're, they're adjacent to it, but they don't really interact that much with all that stuff. It's just kind of part of, in the background, the tension that they're kind of dealing with as they move forward down this road, basically 
that part of the book is a mile. The whole road is a mile they have to walk. So it's a pretty tense mile, basically. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no. Okay, um, I, I I agree with all of that. Uh, for me, I, I think of the book almost set up like a monster movie to a degree. Like I'm thinking of the early Godzilla movies, where you're kind of waiting for that moment when the monster is going to finally show up. Of course, Tremblay does a good job of giving us a, a good image of the monster at its very worst, or some incarnation of the monster um, at the very beginning to hook us in, draw us in. And then for the rest of the time, we have like that, like I said, that tension that's kind of on the horizon all of the time. And every now and then that tension will sort of peek its head out, uh, like the, the various animals, and uh, we never know what's going to happen next. It's almost like a, a, a jump scare that you're waiting, you're waiting for it to happen, uh, but it doesn't really happen. And of course, that does help build tension, and I think it helps build the momentum of the story. One thing that I do like is that he's always like, he's challenging expectations. And you mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, challenging our expectations because we do expect to see if, if the monster or whatever it is, this is, uh, you know, anything that's infected by these rabies uh, rears its ugly head or pops out from the bushes or the shadows. We expect some kind of repercussion to happen, but that's not always necessarily the case. So it's just the fear that something is going to happen in that question of when the hell is it going to happen? Like when's the jump scare going to happen? Um, but of course this is the literary manifestation of, of sort of a, a jump scare approach to writing, which, uh, worked out really well too so well in the militia aspect of it um like is uh, um he explored that much heavier in um cabin at the end of the world um and uh and so what was kind of cool is is that i think he uh, played to the times very well with that militia thing but didn't overdo it which was great um but the way that paul plays with with um uh expectations i think a little bit i i appreciate a little bit more in um well he, he he's done it in the other two books that i've read too head full of ghosts he plays with expectations because to this day he has people asking him was she really possessed or not in head full of ghosts and there is no answer and he's never going to answer by the way so stop asking him um he's made clear that he's not going to answer whether she's really possessed or not and that is not the point of that book at all um and uh you know i don't know that having the answer would make it better so that's an expectation that he um subverted and head full of ghosts the expectations that he subverts in cabin at the end of the world um comes in the sense that um we don't really um the forces that kind of kick off the events the home invasion um becomes one that by the end of the book you really question whether the whole time you're like do i give into this do i give into the these forces that are are pushing this invasion and threatening my family um and you really get like a sense of like what i really appreciated about cabin at the end of the world was that he puts you in a position where um you feel the desperation that that that's causing it and i think that he does that again very well here in survivor song is that um towards especially the back half of it when 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 you know nats is dying you know okay this is it she's losing her shit she's starting to scream she's losing control of herself at that point you you really feel the desperation in each page that's going you feel rams like being like terrified and you know like hey you gotta fucking do this and you as a reader you sit there and you're saying to yourself no you've got to do the c-section you've got to do this you 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 have to make this happen and you're almost like kind of like like um when you're in the horror movie and you're yelling at the screen like do this you're holding survivor song up and you're like yelling at the book like you got to do this you got to you know you're a doctor you can make this happen and um <laughs> and and i think that that's the power of the book because if in the hands of a writer who's less skilled you're just not going to give a shit and i think that that comes back to why 
the whole you got to care to scare thing that Stephen King said, I think, as far back as Don's Macabre. If you don't care about these characters, if you don't, it, it's not going to be scary. You're not going to give a shit, mm -hmm. right? And so all the time that's spent with those diaries or setting up, like, the last act and, 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 and how we do that. So... Um, and now that gets me to the actual writing and constructing of it in, in, in the back half is, um, I, I, and how, I mean, we've drawn, we've talked a little bit of already about like the actual writing and construction. Um, how do you think, um, what do you think are the best examples of how, um, Tremblay sets up the, 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 um, us caring about the characters, starting with Daniel? I think just the, um, the the beginning of the book, she's it's it's literally just her in her house, basically complaining about being pregnant, but also worrying that her husband hasn't made it home from the grocery store yet. So the beginning, however much of the book, you're just in her head. She's giving you little bits of information about um, what's kind of going on in the world, but she's really just kind of focusing on like pregnancy pains and and really human things in this kind of inhuman situation that she's in. So that's kind of where you I that's where you kind of connect to her at least that's Natalie and then um yeah with with remote uh Rams it's just um I honestly I was endeared to her because I just like British accents I think that's the first thing that got me with her her British sensibilities um and then um once you once you get through her stuff with, with her opening scene and you kind of see how much she cares about her friend and how, how much how willing she's how far she's willing to go for her. I think that's how they, they brought me to the characters like that. He did. Yeah, I kept seeing her as the character, the, the companion in the new season of Doctor Who. Like, I kept thinking, like, that's the actor <laughs> that inspired Tremblay to, like, that she's who he was casting in his mind. Um, because she's Indian-British heritage and, and uh, very, very similar in mind. Um, Kirk, how did you connect to the characters? What, what, how did uh, Tremblay connect you to uh, to this this fear? It's it's sort of interesting. Um, this is I'm not going to say it's one of the first times, but it's one of the times that it's been done very effectively, where I'm not really thinking about the characters themselves or connecting with them. Uh, rather, I'm kind of like living vicariously through them. So the, like the small details, like Daniel brought up, um, she's worried about her husband not coming home from the grocery store and all this prep work and all these things, which of course takes me right back to the beginning of the whole coronavirus pandemic. I'm uh, in New York. So that's where things were kind of really wild at the time. And we had no idea what was going to happen or what was coming next. And it just it immediately transported me into the character. So, and it was really cool because it, it kind of, defied these these kind of genre boundaries that sometimes we subconsciously establish for ourselves when we read a book like it's easier for a man sometimes to uh, empathize with a male character or put themselves into a male character for me i had no problem kind of inserting myself into all of these characters based on just minor details like their minor fears uh the jokes that they have with one another their regrets you know things like this so the the most core elements of of the character's humanity is what worked for me um there's there have been other instances where like i might uh, insert other people that i know into characters kind of unwittingly i do that a lot when i'm reading books uh with this one i there was it was just broad enough uh, for to allow me to put myself into almost every single character like there was a sliver of my own identity at stake with each character and uh, that worked really well for me so I dug it and for me the the scene that really kind of broke me and where I thought he did great night dog-eared the page here as I often do for these podcasts but it's page uh, 272 of the hardback edition and this is where she, uh, she's just basically tied up Natalie and she starts to run the numbers in her head about how she's going to have to kill Natalie in this procedure. There's no way she can keep her alive. And she talks about, she gives like the cold hard facts about what she knows about C-section births 
She says C-section births normally take 10 to 15 minutes in ideal conditions. Given that she doesn't have to worry, she doesn't have to worry about Natalie surviving the procedure. Uh, Ramallah should um, be able to decrease the timeline, but there's no there's no way she can perform it in less than four minutes. So she's starting to do the math. She's starting to figure this out. And then that's when it becomes really real. Like she's having to make this decision. Like she's saying, I cannot save my friend, cannot do this um, unless, you know, and then the whole, like when she's like having to find, she has to take Natalie's phone that still has charge when hers doesn't. And she, has, there's a very subtle moment where he mentions that, or well, when I say he, I mean Tremblay, um, has the character, Nat, uh, Rams realizes that Natalie has 30% charge on her phone, that she, that, it, that only this little amount of time has passed that she still has 30% charge on her phone. It was a tiny little thing, but damn, that worked because I think that made it something that we, we could chart, like we could all like think to like, when we're charging our phones, like how much time would have passed, not passed. And it, and it brought a, 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 a real subtle realism to that moment when, she, when, when uh, you know, she's making these life and death decisions, um, when Natalie's in the other room screaming and she's like making, making the preparations. And then I thought to myself how, you know, well, and that would be a really hard scene to watch in a movie because mm -hmm. you'd have her just like screaming her guts out and you'd have to perform. We just watched um, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie, um, 7500, which is the hijacking movie. And one of the things that made that movie uh, really hard for my wife to watch, even though um, it was the fact that for the first 20 minutes, somebody was constantly banging on the door. So there was a nonstop banging on the door and how like, you just want to be like, shut up, stop. <laughs> and how that adds to the tension. And what you would have here is that she has to perform the C-section while her best friend is dying and screaming at the top of her lungs out of a rabies rage. And that is, that really got to me because I, I really tried to as I was reading this, like place myself in that moment. Um, and uh, so it's interesting because um, th that, that really worked well for me. And then as far as, I don't know how the audiobook played this, but Kirk, you can see on the screen, this is how like the C-section scene was written <laughs> um, with tiny myth bits of, let's uh, say, Ramallah climbs on back onto the bed. She places one hand on the belly, the other on the hunting knife. Natalie's breathing is nearly imperceptible. And then there's a large space before the next part of the C-section. And I don't know how this was done in the audio book, but the last couple pages of the reading of it was constructed where what, and what's brilliant about this is that um, Paul's not over explaining what's happening. He's making you fill in that shit as a reader. And like, he's basically challenging you to think this out. And this was like super, like I've never seen anyone do this before. So this is a first time thing. This is really super creative. Um, he's known for having these ambiguous endings. There's nothing ambiguous about the ending of Survivor Song. Um, and, um, but I think having the insanity of doing a C-section on your best friend who's dying from rabies be like in these chopped up little bits, um, instead of describing every word, what he's doing is he's just forcing you to, um, to really, uh, you know, fill in the gaps. And then of course, I don't know how it was in the audiobook, but the last bit is just two pa two blank pages and she cries. So it's interesting to see it because I read it on my Kindle. Um and that scene with the C section, the the layout's weird and there's some like extra spaces between words, but it doesn't look at all like that. Oh that's interesting because we all read it in a different format. Yeah. 
Well, in so the hardcover, it had faces, but it, it just kind of looked it looked weird. I, I kind of figured there was some some thing that looked different in the, the paper copy or whatever, but but it was just kind of like some words had like maybe five spaces between them, or or there was like a weird tab or something, but it wasn't like that, obviously. And how did they do this in the audiobook? Was there long pauses or silence? It was relatively seamless to me, honestly. So there may have very well have been dramatic pausing between each one of those little sections, but it wouldn't have been long enough for me to go, whoa, something different's happening here. You know, this is, this is obviously something different. Um, I do know that, and I'm veering off just briefly with Cabin in the Woods, that uh, when I got Cabin in the Woods, I actually bought the book and listened to it in audiobook because of the dialogue, the way that uh, Tremblay approaches dialogue. So um, I'm going to start doing that with some of these other books as well. Uh, one more example would be, I think, Crank it's called. And apparently it's like written really uniquely in, in text. The book, the audio book is no indication that that's the case at all. So you lose so much mm -hmm. sometimes when transferring things to audio books. And this may be an instance where we're, we're losing something kind of significant. So. Well, I, yeah. And, and now that I'm hearing that you guys both read in different formats, it's really interesting because and I just, I got the book from the library. So, um, but, um, but I, I, I think it's cool that he's giving something to the person who's taking the time to, to read the actual book or to get the book that, that it has something. I don't know. And I'll have to ask Paul how he thought about translating it into these various versions when, 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 when I do the interview, but, but um, it, that's a really, it's a really cool part about how, how the book ends. And this is before the, the um, postlude, because there's the interlude in the middle, there's the prelude, and then the postlude. And if you look to, these have really interesting layouts. I don't know about on the Kindle, but like the interludes, the prelude, and the postlude have um, like this old English version, and like the pages are in a different color, and um, it gives the book a really produced feel. Um, the Kindle, the font was just bigger in those sections. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, yeah, and so I think the way, this is interesting too, because this points to how you produce a book more than just, you know, just words on the page. And, and it'll be interesting to talk to Paul about how much he thought about that, how much he oversaw that, because um, there's definitely something really cool going on with the way he wrote the C-section. Mm -hmm part in that section um and uh there's something really interesting going on there but uh but it's 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 cool because he's really thinking those things out and it's interesting that you should mention cabin at the end of the world too because I, I mean i could pull that one off the shelf but but my recollection was that 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 there are large sections that are almost like fletch like with just dialogue back and forth for long periods of time. And if anyone's never read Fletch, like the, the, the novel Fletch is almost entirely dialogue. There's, there's very little yeah. of that book besides what people are saying to each other for, and, and it's amazing, it works really well. And um, because the, of the nature of the home invasion story at Cabin in the End of the World, there are large sections that are that are people just um, trying to communicate with each other and you know move the story forward in that way. Anywho, um, yeah. So um, I mean, overall, um, you know, it's funny because uh, this happens to me a lot. Like my first impression of a book, a really good book for me. Um, my first impression when I close the book. Um, a lot of times I convince myself that a book is better the more I think about it. And a really good book, the more, especially because I write very detailed reviews, right, for my blog. And if I'm spending a lot of time thinking about the book, the best books to me get better as I think about them. Um, and there have been books, especially through the Dickheads process, where um, I didn't really like the book when I closed it. And then um, I got a whole different feeling for it when I started like picking it apart, thinking about things. And, and then sometimes I would have the, it actually occurred to me, hey, I didn't even realize what that book was trying to do until I thought about it later. And it's, so it's a really interesting feeling for me is 
how, how did you feel about the book when you closed the book and how did you feel about it later? Um, I recently read a generation starship science fiction novel by Rivers Solomon. And um, this book was really interesting to me because I really didn't like it while I was reading it. In fact, there were times where I thought about abandoning the book. And when I was writing the review, I started going back and reading parts. And then there were things that I still didn't like about it. But the longer I thought about it, I actually appreciated it. And Survivor Song is a book that I enjoyed the whole way through. However, I appreciated the artistic nature of what Paul accomplished narratively so much more the longer that I thought about it. I thought it was a five-star book when I read it. But as a writer, I appreciated what he pulled off in Survivor Song more the more I thought about it, which is interesting because I already thought it was a great book. <laughs> but the, the tight tension of the basically taking place over four hours, right? And, you know, because a story that takes place over four hours, you might think to yourself that a novella might be better length for it. But one thing I do really appreciate about Paul Tremblay is that he does not write doorstops. He does not write three. I mean, Kevin at the End of the World in Stephen King's hands would have been 800 pages, right? This story in, in, in most writers' hands um, is more contained because of the concept is contained. So I don't think it could be longer, but it's so great that he is bringing these books in at, at 300 pages. I just really appreciate that. Well, I like with, with uh, Survivor Song, I like that the story and the elements he was putting into it, the militia, all the other stuff, it could have been easily been 800 pages, 600 pages. And I like that he kind of gave you little dashes of all that stuff, but you didn't really get bogged down in like the science behind the virus or, the, or anything like that, or the militia stuff. Like they were just like a passing kind of fancy in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he does that stuff really subtle in little cool ways, but he doesn't overtake the story and he stayed focused on, you know, and, and you know, look, I, and I just say this as somebody who faced this challenge as a writer when, when I wrote Ring of Fire, right? Um, and it was really important to me because I knew I had multi, I had multiple characters throughout the city because it's a story about a wildfire and ecological disaster in the city. And I knew I was going to have to have characters that worked at radio stations and worked at the mayor's office and, and uh, a homeless person. And, and I knew I had all these different characters and I said, and I basically challenged myself, like do this in 300 pages, like don't do this over 800 pages. And, um, it was a challenge in the outlining process. And I don't know if Paul is a pantser or an outliner. I'm religiously an outliner. Um, and I, I think that this story would benefit from an outline, but it's clear that, you know, what, what's good about this, it's like, um, you know, Stephen King is famously a pantser. And that's one of the, why you have endings like it and the stand and um, books like Under the Dome where I don't think he knew what that, where he was going at all. But then some of his masterpieces are Misery and The Dead Zone, which became ideas with endings, right? Like you cannot write The Dead Zone without knowing the ending. You know the ending as soon as you come up with the, the idea for it. And that's one of the reasons why The Dead Zone is one of his masterpieces. Pet Cemetery, you know what the ending is gonna be. You can't get around that. And, and I think Survivor Song is also a book where it benefited from the fact that we know we're going to end up with Natalie succumbing to the disease and having to either save or not save the child. Whether the child is saved or not, that's what comes in the story and creates the tension. Um, Kirk, how do you feel about... Um, um, this book after sitting on it for a little while after having read it or listened to it a couple weeks ago. Right. Um, yeah. um, it's, it's a very different experience for me than what I'm normally accustomed to reading. So I always, whenever I experience a book like that, I have to think on it for a long time, usually before I make um, any kind of determination about what I thought about it. But my gut reaction when I closed it was it, it's definitely reminiscent enough 
to his previous works and his, his stylistic approach that I now have something to fam familiar to ground myself in when I'm making a judgment about it. Um, I still do typically prefer the faster paced kind of shorter books, 130 to 220 pages, something that's kind of my sweet spot. Um, and then, of course, I start rationalizing that and going, well, some of these things could be cut. This could have been cut. That could have been cut. But of course, you know, it's not my novel to direct. Uh, later, uh, when I think about it, especially now after having the discussion today, I start to think about how this book works so incredibly well. My wife is a, a librarian and she's huge into like New York Times bestsellers. Like she reads uh, those kind of books, books that are a little bit longer. And when I, we talk about books with one another, I'm like, this is a horror book for her. This is a horror book that she would really enjoy. Um, and I said this earlier in the, in the podcast that this is a, it's a mainstream horror book and it works incredibly well. It focuses in on the humanity of the characters. Um, the pacing is really impressive. Uh, it's, it's definitely reminiscent of more of the kind of material my wife reads, which is great because it, it exposes, it's, it has the potential to reach a broader audience. Um, but it also can teach readers and writers like myself a, a thing or two about how this can work because it grounds it in the genre of horror, which I'm into. So um, I, I admire it quite a bit now uh, and certainly much more than I did uh, when I first closed the book. So. Yeah, and, and I, I do think, uh, well, I think it's gonna have mainstream success. The fact that Stephen King tweeted about it doesn't hurt. Um, uh, <laughs> Good endorsement. And, uh, you know, boy, you know, uh, um, you can't you can't buy that kind of <laughs> advertisement. Um, and look, um, Stephen King hasn't steered me wrong. A lot of times, when 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 he tweets out about a book, I, I admit I I I pay attention um, to when he. Um, I think of. Um, End of the World Running Club was an example of a book that he um, tweeted as, because he bought it at an airport um, and then like read it all on a flight and tweeted about it when he got at the end of the flight. And then I was like, whoa, you know, like he said, I've never heard of this author. I just picked this book up at the Toronto airport. And I was like, well, that's cool. And, and like that book, was great. And I was like, after that, I was like, okay, well, Stephen King's taking the time to tweet about it. He probably really cares really, you know, and, and then, and he doesn't do this for everybody. He's done this for Paul Tremblay, for Sarah Pimborough, um, you know, recently, uh, you know, he doesn't just do the unsolicited tweets <laughs> about authors unless he really, really firmly believes in them. And you know, he's reading other stuff. He's just, these are the ones that he, that he really cares about. And um, you know, he did the same with Cabin of the End of the World, I, I believe, too. And so I think he really does um, appreciate Tremblay. And, and I do think the comparisons to, um, you know, he's not another Stephen King. He is closer to a Richard Matheson, you know. Um, that being said, Richard Matheson was a little bit more widespread on the genre. I think what the comparisons are with Matheson is his ability to write um, very tightly plotted and um, moving stories. Because if you look at, um, you know, I Am Legend is this classic of, of vampire, basically zombie, pandemic, like all that, science fiction and horror, it's a very short novel. You know, there's not a ton to it, but there's more in that short novel to freak you out than most novels that are 900 pages, you know, and which everyone should keep in mind too, is that Richard Matheson wrote I Am Legend for a UCLA um, writing class in 1954. And it holds up today, like, you know, and, and that's just incredible too, to think about how timeless that book is with um, just the skills. And, you know, he's always, he's famously told the story that um, in this writing class, the uh, teacher made him read the chapter about the dog to the whole class. And all the teacher said was he pointed at Matheson and said, that's a writer. <laughs> He's going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that chapter, you know, still breaks hearts, you know, 60 years later. 
which is 70 years later, you know, it's just crazy. And I think what we've got here at Survivor Song is we've got a classic that is just freshly born. Um, and it's one that I think, you know, it's funny because you guys know, I told you as I was reading it, ah, I think I like Cabin to the End of the World more. Well, I hadn't finished Survivor Song, <laughs> right? And um, I don't know which one I like more, actually. Uh, they're different. Um, I think Survivor Song is a more tightly written book that will appeal to the mainstream a little bit more than Cabin in the End of the World. But I think Cabin in the End of the World might have just like tickled my fancy a little bit more. Because um, Cabin in the End of the World um, plays with a lot of the same scenarios that you saw. I, I don't know, I keep mentioning because I watched the movie last night. But if people seen the, the movie uh, 7500 with just Gordon-Levitt on Amazon, um, you know, he's a pilot and part of the whole thing of the movie is, is that one of the um, hostages is, is his fiance, who's a flight attendant. And, um, you know, the question is, does he open the door and let the hijackers in to con take control of the plane or does he watch his family member die? And that whole question is cabin at the end of the world, right? set against a home invasion story and that that Sophie's Choice um, aspect of, of Cabin in the End of the World is something that um, is uh, something I like to play with a lot in my fiction. So, um, okay, so Survivor Song. Uh, guys, I don't know, um, any final thoughts on, on Survivor Song, Paul Tremblay, like um, other comparable books if people are like, because a lot of people are going to come here just wanting to hear discussion of a book they finished reading. Um, what are some similar books that you might send people to? Um, if you're a mainstream reader that's looking for more horror like Survivor Song, uh, what do you have in mind? Uh, starting with Kurt. Um, I just got done with the book. I believe it was called The Whisper Man. Um, and uh, that was a pretty good uh, mainstream horror book as well. I, I think... Um, I think if folks like Tremblay, they would enjoy that book also. Another one that, well, it's a little bit older. I was, I was trying to dig through my, my reading um, challenge for the year, but uh, gosh. Yeah, Survival Song, The Whisper Man was another really good one. I, oh, this one's free, and this is just a collection book, Come Join Us by the Fire, which features work from Paul Tremblay. It's an audio book uh, through Tor Publishing. That's got a lot of good stuff on it, and it's got a wide range of, I think, authors and stylistic approaches so that you can get a better sense of the authors that maybe fall within uh, your, you know, your prefer stylistic preferences when you're reading books. So I enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, other than that, um, gosh, I'm not I'm not going to name drop any more folks like Kuntz or Stephen King. Gosh damn it, or God darn, gosh darn it, sorry. Uh, Ten, but no, that's that's more YA. I'll stop there. That's what I've got. A couple books. I will point out with Kuntz, and I'm not a big fan of Kuntz. I think Kuntz is not. I think he started as a better writer, and I think he got so diluted over the years. But I oh, will sure. say that a very similar book to Survivor Song by Dean Koontz that is one of his better books is Intensity by sure. Dean Koontz. Is, yeah, my, yeah, Intensity my is one of Koontz's best books. And um, it has a very similar um, uh, pacing, shall we say, to Survivor Song. Sure. And another book that I would say is a good comparison to Survivor Song is Robert McCammon's Mime. Mm -hmm. um, which is um, a crime thriller by McCammon that's about um, a weather underground type radical who kidnaps a child um, and believing that this child is their child. Um, and uh, I would say um, new readers, mainstream readers to Survivor Song, looking for something like that. Robert McCammon's Mine would be a great similar one. And the thing about Mine is that uh, Frank Darabont uh, famously made Shawshank Redemption and all that. Um, Frank Darabont owned the rights to Mine for many years and was shopping a screenplay of Mine for years that has been notorious throughout Hollywood as this amazing script that just never was able to get greenlit. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you're a big Frank Darabont fan, know that he worked his ass off to try to get a movie made of that for years. Daniel, any comparisons, anything you want to... I was just looking, while you guys were talking, I was looking around at my shelf to just try to see, but I can't really think of anything that I would compare it to. Again, I'm not obviously as versed as you guys in like the horror genre, so it, it's a little trickier for me to think of something off the top of my head right now. Well, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I think we, we got them to... Oh, yeah, you have another one, Kurt? Can I throw two more out there for you folks? Sure, yeah, please. Um, I, the, uh, the Nest uh, by Gregory Douglas. It was one of the uh, paperbacks from Hell Books. Uh, I was really pleasantly surprised by that one. Very well done. It's about um, these, these uh, insects that are um, infesting this small, I think, port town. And um, it, it was really, really well done. Uh, the pacing was great in that one as well. And then if you want something that's, the pacing is reminiscent of uh, Survivor Song, The Return by Rachel Harrison was another one that I did. These, these are all like my list of audiobooks that I do from the library. And that one was, I thought, really enjoyable too. Um, so, and that's all I've got. Yeah, well, um, I think we've given people some ideas and... <laughs> Um, so I, of course, if people are wrong with Richard Matheson, I think there's a reason why King compared Richard Matheson. Um, and for that, I mean, his are a little bit more higher concept genre work, but um, I think a similar um, kind of relation, relationship driving, it's, it's going to sound weird to say that a book about the afterlife and don't think about the movie because the, the book is much better, which is... Um, uh, what Dreams May Come by Richard Matheson is, you know, everyone points to I Am Legend, but I think uh, What Dreams May Come is is Matheson's, like, actual masterpiece. Um, and it's much better than, the, the movie's not terrible, but it's not as good as, as the book. And um, the chapter where, uh, the chapter in Hell um, is uh, one of the most harrowing uh, things I've ever, I, I've ever read, ever. Uh, so, um, and even if you know what the plot of the of the movie is, it's not going to hurt you if you read What Dreams May Come. Um, great stuff. Um, all right, guys, um, where can uh, people find your work online? Uh, starting with Daniel. Uh, I'm, all my stuff's available on Amazon. I am available on all the main social media platforms. I don't have a personal website anymore. It currently sells Japanese space heaters because I let the domain lapse. But Japanese space heaters, huh? DanielVelocity.com if you need a Japanese space heater, I guess. Um, but all the social media platforms are where you can find me pretty much every day. Kurt? Um, well, these days, I think it's always best to buy direct if you possibly can. So the Adelato website, um, it's Adelato and Grindhouse together. Uh, have a good number of books, um, including my own and uh, Apex the publisher Apex, who just started their magazine up again. Uh, you can get the right, material so. direct there. Of course, you can always find it on Amazon as well. And my recommendation would be, you know, if people are horror fans or horror sci-fi fans, either Christ. Um, so check it out if you get a chance, folks. I got, I'm got i on all social media too, and I've got a WordPress page, but you just find it. Type in Kirk Jones, comma space bizarro, and you'll find all my garbage. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to remind people too, you don't have to buy all of our works necessarily. What you can do, which was even better, is to uh, request it at your library and um, actually talk to your librarians about it and tell them like why you think these books would be great there. And part of it could be that, you know, you see these authors supporting the bookosphere. Um, you know, we're not making any money off people reading Survivor Song, uh, right? But uh, we love to discuss books because we like to support the book sphere, whether it's us or other authors. And so that's one of the things we'll be doing here again. I'm sure um, I stock Goodreads looking for people who've read the same books as me to have these kinds of discussions. So if I peep Daniel and Kirk uh, reading books that I've read, uh, you may see them again on postcards. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, but so, yeah, just remember that you can always request these things at the library and um, and uh, you don't have to buy everything. We um, It means something to us if we can get it in libraries. And if you talk to librarians, the other thing, Kirk can probably confirm this for you, is if, libra if librarians find that you're passionate about the work, then 
they're more likely to put these books on display and to talk about them and say like, oh, I have really, there's fans that are really passionate about this work. You should check it out. Because they'll remember, they'll say, um, next time they see somebody checking out like a Philip K. Dick book and say, oh, you like Philip K. Dick? You might really like this, this author who's new and contemporary. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's how the conversation happens. So um, any final thoughts, guys, or we'll close it up. I'd just like to say thanks for having me on. It was a good time chatting about the book. And um, yeah, it'd be great to come on again sometime if we ever read something similar. So I look forward to it. Well, you know, and that's the other thing too, is if uh, I usually post pictures of the books I'm going to read ahead of time, uh, a lot of times so people can figure out what, what I'm reading. And um, some really cool things coming up. I got Silvia Marino Garcia's uh, Mexican Gothic I'm going to be reading soon. And um I know Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan's new book is on my radar and some other stuff. So uh, keep uh, everybody listening, keep your eyes peeled and, and we'll, uh, we'll be back again. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right.